Well, good morning, church. I hope you're doing well today as we jump into summer and our June series uh, today. I, I'm in a moment, I'm going to introduce you to our guests, but I do want to call attention before I do that to the connect card that's in the seat pocket in front of you, especially if you're a guest here with us today. We want to know that you were here with us and uh, we'd like to send you an email, reach out to you and see how we might help you connect and answer any questions that you have. So uh, at the beginning of the service, I just want to ask you to take that out and fill that out later in the service. When we have a chance to give, you can drop that completed connect card uh, in the bucket. But today it's my uh, pleasure to introduce you to uh, not only a gifted and anointed communicator of the Word of God, but one of my closest friends in the whole world. And this is one of those treasures that when God gives you uh, as a married couple, you know this to be true, that it just doesn't happen very often. Uh, that, that my closest friend, his wife is my wife's closest friend, and their children are my children's friends. And, and it's just incredible how that's such a great, great gift from the Lord. And, and uh, when, when I booked David to preach, I said, hey, y'all come early. And, and when he booked his ticket, he booked it for last Sunday to come this week. And there are 99% of the people in the world, if they did that, I would tell them, no, no, that's not what I meant. Uh, come early. I meant like come Saturday or Friday. But, but when, when uh, David said they booked it on Sunday, I was like, why, why not the previous Sunday? Uh, because hanging out with them has been a pleasure all week long. Uh, he's the vice president and uh, director of spiritual affairs, the pastor at Liberty University, which is the largest Christian university in the world. And he leads the two largest college gatherings uh, weekly. One is the convocation that happens with 15 to 17,000 students every uh, three times a week, 88 of them a year. And, and then on Wednesday nights, church, this college church uh, of college students that come and gather, I've had the privilege of preaching at both of those uh, a few times. And it's an incredible environment. God's using him to lead that and, and lead future thinkers. In fact, he was just awarded an honorary doctorate uh, at, at Liberty University. I had to work for mine. And, and, and they... <laughs> just handed him one, and I was so grateful and proud of him. I want you to put your hands together and welcome my friend David Nasser to the stage. Anybody uh, can just, you know, do hard work, a lot of time and money, uh, earn a doctorate, but it just takes a very special person to be able to just be given one, right, man? So that... That involves either anointing or you're about to die and, and they're just going to give you one, you know, before you croak or whatever. So that's a special thing that I got. Hey, just such an honor to be here with you. Uh, I, I love this church because I feel like even though, uh, you know, just once a year or maybe sometimes two times a year, I get to actually physically be uh, with this body. Uh, I hear about you all the time. Uh, I'm always constantly asking Alex to come on staff at Liberty University and it's your fault that he won't come. He loves you too much. He always talks about you. He's always bragging on you. And uh, so I, before we even get going, I, I, I would just like to um, re request that you, you stop being so extraordinary. All right. So can you just become more of an ordinary church that, so that he can come and be? I've always tell him, like, I'm like Michael Scott and you can be my Dwight Schrute, Alex. You can literally come and be the assistant to the regional pastor. All right. At Liberty. And uh, and then uh, uh, he, he always turns me down. All, all kidding aside, we, we just love this family and uh, really do count it a joy to have him in, in our lives. My my wife's very best friend is Meredith and um, our kids love the Hamaya kids and uh, we're just encouraged to be around them spiritually. We don't just love hanging out with them. I'm always just compelled to be more like Jesus when I'm around them and their kids. And, and um, even this week, just there were several different moments where um, I watched their faith on display 
not so much on a stage like you see Dr. Hamaya preach, but just watch the way that they are towards people. Watch the way that they just showed grace and mercy and generosity to different people. And it was just, honestly, it was encouraging me to be more like Jesus as well. This is a special day for me uh, and my family as well, simply uh, because today is also my wife and I's uh, 23rd anniversary. So sitting right here in the front row is my beautiful wife, Jennifer. And uh, we've been married 23 days. Wow. Uh, it's amazing. And, uh, and then my son, Rudy, who's sitting right there by, by my wife, uh, was adopted from Guatemala. Uh, and he came home on this exact same day as well. And so just such an honor. This is such a special day for our family. And um, I, I, sweetheart, I, I love you every single day. And you are, you are the, the most incredible gift. And uh, I, I am just blown away by you and learn new things about you every day. And I'm so thankful for you. And I just want to tell all these people, all right, that I'm a blessed man. All right. So thank you for marrying me. Thank you for sticking it out. All right. And, and, and praise the Lord. This is foreign missions for her. When she adopted uh, me into her life, she, she got an Iranian family that came along. All right. So it is exhausting at time to be, uh, I'm, I'm high reward because look at me, I'm, I'm hot. Right. But at the same time, <laughs> underneath all this hotness, there's some crazy. All right. So thank you so much, honey, for, for being my wife. And, um, uh, the, the weird thing about a, an anniversary is that, uh, obviously uh, you love that person that you're with every single day. And hopefully you show that every single day, but on a day like this, you stop and you celebrate it on a day like this, you stop. And even though it's a reality every single day uh, on an anniversary, you remember it at a different level. You look back on your wedding day on a day like this, and you think about the dress that you wore. You think about your friends who, who were there as you walk down the aisle. You think about that moment, right? You memorialize it. Many of you know what I'm talking about. And that last weekend on Memorial Day weekend, we remember, right, men and women who gave their life in the armed forces for us. And so every single day, hopefully we're grateful for them. Every single day we honor them. But on a weekend like last weekend, we're not just getting, you know, a better deal on a mattress, right? We're not just getting an extra day off work. We are putting those people on our front view, not in the rear view, and we're remembering them. And so anniversaries are those kind of days. Obviously, Memorial Day weekend is that kind of a weekend when it comes to the men and women of the armed forces. And today on all of our campuses will be that kind of a day as it relates to what Jesus Christ did on the cross for us as here in just a little while, our pastors, our different campus pastors bring us to the communion table together. Today, we are going to think and remember an event in history, right, that happened 1,982 years ago, but is just as relevant and just as much worthy of celebration for you and I at this very moment. And so every day, hopefully, you preach the gospel to yourself. Every day you wake up and at every breath, you're grateful for what Jesus did on the cross for you and me. Amen. But that said, when we come to the table, as Jesus literally told us to in remembrance of him, we make sure that we put that in front and center in this very moment. And we're not going to get to do that uh, as we just come and we think about the body and the blood, the body that was pierced and the blood that was shed so that so that you and I can be afforded salvation. Now, when I say salvation, 
And I ask you, uh, you know, do you appreciate that? And you say, amen. Uh, I, I don't just presume that a church with thousands of people on multiple campuses, right, that everybody here knows what I mean when I say the gospel. The gospel, uh, just to simplify it, you know, for you and I, is the good news. That's literally what that word gospel means. It's the good news that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came down, lived a perfect life, and after having lived a perfect life, died a sinner's death for you and for me, that if we believe in what he did on his death, right, we, we believe that what he did by paying the penalty for our sins, you and I can be granted, you and I can be afforded, right, forgiveness for our sins and be made new in Christ. The gospel is really, really simple. I mean, if you really think about it, it begins with a few realities, it begins with the understanding that God, for example, is very real. I don't know if you know this, but God exists. God is real. If you don't believe that God exists, then, then let me just kind of bring it back to your own conclusions and ask you, if you don't believe that there is a God, if you don't believe that there is a creator, then how did you end up here? If you're thinking, well, I don't really believe there's a creator and I'm just kind of visiting this whole church thing on a summer weekend with my family and I ended up here and I know a lot of these people have drank this creator Kool-Aid, but I haven't. Well, then let me just ask you, how do you believe that you ended up in this very moment that you're in as a part of creation? Surely you believe that your creation and surely as a person who believes that you are a part of creation, that you believe that you actually exist, that you were, you actually are a person sitting here that someone had to create you. I mean, I know a lot of people think that we came out of monkeys. Well, then who made the monkey? All right. Rather than just kind of really asking that question. And if you, by the way, see me with my shirt off, walking around like a chia pet, you'd go, there's, there's evidence right there, as hairy as he is. But in all reality, like if we came from monkeys, which, which I don't believe we did, then who made the monkey? If you go, well, the monkey comes from, you know, a bunch of atoms, then who made the atom? Well, the atom has a nucleus. Who made the nucleus? The nucleus broken down. I don't know. I'm not a scientist nor a nerd. Is, I don't know. New. Who made the new? That new is mm, who made the mm, the mm is broken down into mm, who made the mm, the mm is uh, whatever, who made the uh, and the uh is whatever, like who made that? If you're thinking, well, all of that came from a bang, well, then who caused the bang? You and I have to eventually come to the reality that someone had to create creation. So before there was a creation, there had to be an uncreated one, right, who created all of creation. And so in all reality, in all reality, you and I have to acknowledge that before there was anything, there had to be someone who created anything. And so God is the creator of it all. God is real. And so God exists, and that's real. But not only does God exist, but you and I exist. You and I exist. The evidence that you and I exist is the fact that you're sitting in a chair. Is the fact that people acknowledge you being in that chair. People know if you're here and they know if you're not, right? People will acknowledge you by the way that your presence is, is known at work. If you don't show up at work, certain things that should have gotten done don't get done. If you don't show up, then, you know, here, then there's a, there's a smell that's missing. There's a laughter that's missing. There's a voice in singing that's missing. Your evidence that you're here. And so God exists and you exist. But here's the reality about our God. God exists as a holy, perfect, sinless, all-knowing, all-powerful, righteous God, right? But you and I exist completely different from that. 
God exists as perfect, but you and I are imperfect. God exists as sinless, but you and I are sinful. Now, maybe you're hearing that and you're going, man, uh, you know, you had me on this creation thing a little bit, but now you're calling me sinful. How how, how dare you call me sinful? I don't think I'm perfect, but I'm certainly not going to brand myself as sinful. If you don't believe you're sinful, there's your first sin right there. (laughs) Self-righteousness. The Bible says that we've all sinned and fallen short to the glory of of God. The Bible tells you and I that God is perfect and righteous and holy and sinless, but that you and I are born in this world, Adamic, born in this world as professional sinners. Our nature is shown by the evidence of the way we act out of that nature, which is acting in unbelief towards God in this thing called sin. No one would have to teach you how to sin, right? You were born in this world, a professional sinner. I don't care what kind of environment you're brought up in, the reality is that you've exuded, you've shown the evidence of your sinful nature in your life. You look at an Osama bin Laden and certainly the greenhouse effect, right, of a lot of fertilizer and a lot of things gone wrong exude themselves in a very different kind of sin. But you look at your life. I don't care how sheltered you were, but surely you acknowledge no matter how sheltered you are, how chlorinated people try to incubate your life into perfection, that sin rears its ugly head in your life. Speaking of incubation of like cleanliness, my sister, all right, comes to my mind. My sister is the most like conservative person on the planet, y'all, all right? My sister, like Amish people would look at my sister and go, chill out. I'm just telling you, my sister is so conservative. Like my, my, you know, my, her, her kids, uh, you know, just, uh, uh, first of all, she names like her, her oldest Emmanuel after our Lord, you know? And so, and, and just the most conservative, like a little environment for, for little kids when they were growing up. And, and I remember one time, uh, Emmanuel, when he was a baby, uh, needed a ride from like, I think he was vacation Bible school or whatever. I don't know churn butter 2009 or whatever it was. Uh, Emmanuel had this event and he needed a ride from the event to her and she couldn't go get him. And so she calls me and she says, can you go and pick him up? And, and I said, I was like, sure. And so I go to get him. And on the way over, she calls me and she's like, hey, I know that you're a lot more liberal than me. And, I, and here's what I'm going to ask you to do. She goes, I'm going to ask you to not to like be you. All right. For the 45 minutes that he's, you're going to go get him and bring him over. And in my mind, I was like, you ain't my mom. You're my sister. So like, don't be telling me that. All right. So uh, I, I pick him up. And the first thing I do is I just crank Van Halen the whole drive over there because I need him to know some Van Halen. Anybody know what I'm talking about? By the way, I'm not even saying that's sin. I'm just saying that's music. All right. So, you know, so I'm cranking Van Halen. We go to the gas station. Emmanuel's sitting there. I think he's reading his Bible. All right. You know, whatever. And I, I go and uh, as I'm as I'm like paying for the gas at the gas station, I, I see some chocolate in the front. And my sister's always like trying to preserve him from like, I don't know, the devil's sugar or whatever she called it. And so I, I get this big old thing of family pack M&Ms, you know, and I put them in my pocket. I get in the car. And as soon as I get in the car, I see him in the rearview mirror, you know, and I go, hey, Emmanuel, I pull out the chocolate, you know, the m and I'm like, you want some? And he looks at me and he's like looking at me like my mom doesn't allow me to have sugar. And so I'm like, she ain't here, buddy. And so he like nods. Yes. And so I start hooking the brother up with some M&Ms, right? We're driving down the road. We're listening to Van Halen, you know, and doing like Panama. I'm just slipping the brother M&M after M&M. He's not had sugar like, like, I don't know, whatever, ever or in a while or whatever, you know. So he is quickly getting high. He's like, ah you know, and, and he's got the little chocolate mustache. We pull up in her driveway. She gets out to come meet us. I don't even pull my window down. I pull up down his window in the back. She walks right over to her son. She sees the chocolate mustache and she looks right at him and she goes, Emmanuel, have you been eating sugar? 
and he looks right at her, and he literally looks right at her without even, he just goes, no. He just lies. No one had to teach him how to sin, and I help, but that's beside the point. No one had to teach him, right? Because it is in him. It doesn't matter how much you protect him, it is in him. No one had to teach you when you were a kid how to lie. No one had to teach you how to think more about yourself. No one had to teach you, right, how, how to be jealous. No one had to teach you how to, how to be all that you are. So God exists, and he's perfect. God exists, and he's holy. And you and I exist, and we're imperfect. You and I exist, and we're sinners, now, maybe you're hearing all that, and you're like, yeah, sure. Like, uh, I'm, I'm selfish, and yeah, sure, I've got some issues, but at least I'm not Osama bin Laden. You're right. It's different degrees, but God grades on a very different curve than you and I do. Sure, the reality is that if I go 10 miles over the speeding limit over here, right, that, that there's a consequence for that. There's a ticket that I'll have for that. But if I go and shoot somebody, there's a very different consequence. And that's the reality that sin has in it. Disobedience has in it. Breaking the law has in it a different level of consequences. But in God's holy, perfect standard, one drop of sin is all the evidence of your sinful nature. And God grades when it comes to eternity on a very different curve. Suppose I walk into a morgue, okay? And I know that's a weird illustration, but suppose I walk into a morgue and I pull out a drawer. And when I pull out a drawer, there is a elderly lady in this drawer. It's a precious grandmother who had just passed away a few hours ago. She has a gown on that it's obvious her family had put on her and she smells like perfume. It's the perfume the family was used to always associating her with. And so she has perfume. She has makeup. She's not breathing to touch. She's cold, but it's obvious. Grandma just in the hospital, took her last breath, and now she's gone. And you look at this precious lady, and then you pull a, another drawer beside her out at the morgue, and there's something very gruel, just, just very, very violent on the side. There's a bag, and you can see through the bag, and it just looks like flesh and bones and remains, and there's a tag, and it just says Robert. And it looks very different. It smells very different. Even with the back closed, you can get the stench of the decay. And somebody tells you, they say, that's Robert. Robert went missing about a year ago on a hunting trip. They never found his body. But when the snow melted and everything else, they found eventually Robert's remains. After the animals had gotten to it, they had to go by dental records just to be able to, to identify that that's actually Robert. So laying right beside each other are two dead bodies. One of them is grandma and grandma is beautiful and she's precious and she has makeup, but she's not breathing. The other one is the remains in a garbage bag. Can I ask you a question? Which one is dead? Which one is more dead? Which one is less dead? The reality of that is one of them is a cleaned up version of dead and the other one is a decaying version of dead, but both of them are 100% dead, right? Look at me. The Bible says the cleaned up church people that have not been redeemed and the worst kind of person that you see, the rebel and the religious man, both dead. The religious man is just a cleaned up version of dead. But the Bible reminds us that all of us have sinned and come short to the glory of God. And so God exists as an alive God who's holy and perfect and righteous and sinless. And you and I exist as sinners. And every single one of us, every single one of us is sinful. And that sin results in death. Now, it might be different degrees of death, but it's death. It's death. So we're not just in trouble. We don't just need a cleanup. We need resurrection. We're dead. Amen?
And so God exists and we exist. But here's the problem. Our sinful nature separates us from a holy, perfect, righteous God. And here's the problem with that. We can't remove that on our own merit. We can't go to church enough. We can't write a tithe check big enough. We can't sing a Jesus culture song loud enough to earn the merit to remove that sin. Religion says you can earn it. But Jesus tells us, I didn't come down here because there were several ways. There's no way for you to, to have that removed. And so we have a problem because that sin separates us from God. But then Jesus comes. The Bible says in John 14, right, that Jesus comes to be the way, the truth, and the life. And so Jesus comes down 2,000 years ago, 1,982 years ago. Jesus comes down, and after having lived a sinless, perfect, righteous life, he who knew no sin has the sins of the world imputed on him. Jesus comes down, and after living a perfect life, he dies to pay the penalty for all the sins of you and I so that that sin is paid for, so that that sin has been, that, that, that standard is satisfied by God's holy, perfect nature standard. And so that gets removed. So Jesus comes to pay the penalty for that. And that's the good news of the gospel. Jesus comes to be a way where there is no other way. Jesus comes to give life, even though you and I are dead in our sins and our trespasses. Jesus comes to be the truth in a place of lies that says to you, don't worry about that. You're fine just the way that you are. Or, hey, worry about that. Work, work really, really hard to earn your way out of this trouble and this mess that you're in. And so God exists and we exist, but we exist as sinners. And that sin gets in the way until Jesus comes to be the only way, the only way. And when we come to the table on a day like this, whether you're hearing this for the first time or you know it, you and I are reminded that that blood that was shed, that that body that was pierced was not, look at me, just for us, but was literally because of us. Because of us. I love what the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, 5. He says this. He says he, he's talking about Jesus Christ, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds... You and I are healed. An incredible reality that's right here for us to never forget. Has anybody here ever seen the movie Saving Private Ryan by chance? Anybody ever see that movie? It's rated R. You're going to hell. I'm just kidding. You're not. I've seen it. I actually own that movie. I, I own the DVD for that movie. And uh, uh, I remember the, the first time that I ever saw that movie, it just moved me. I, I'll never get over it. When the movie first came out, I couldn't wait, you know, because Steven Spielberg had directed it, my favorite director. Uh, Tom Hanks was in it, my favorite actor. I know Matt Damon and a lot of other actors were in it as well, but I just remember when it first came out, Tom Hanks actually says that it is his favorite movie that he's ever gotten to be a part of. Steven Spielberg actually says it's the greatest movie he's ever had the pleasure of getting to direct. When the movie first came out, it just took, you know, Hollywood by storm. I I think it's either 13 or 12 Oscars that it was nominated for. It was an incredible, incredible experience. I don't know if you've never seen it. And if you haven't, like, I just recommend that you watch this movie. It is not enjoyable. I remember the first time that I saw the movie. I walked in a movie theater. I think it came out on a Friday, and I got to see it the next Monday at about 1230 in the afternoon. 
I love going to afternoon movies because the movie theater is usually empty and you don't have to like like jockey for your for you know a center seat you know and and um, you get the popcorn is a little cheaper and I, I walked in the theater I was the only one in the theater I sit down and I've got that WD forty poured on a you know fifty gallon drum of popcorn that we all have to mortgage our house to buy you know and I'm just kind of watching previews and and these two elderly gentlemen come in. Out of this entire theater, like this completely empty, they sit like right in front of me. You ever notice how that happens? You just kind of bundle up. And the, the second, third movie peer review finishes out, and then the movie starts. They call the first seven minutes of this movie the most realistic war reenactment in Hollywood history for good reason. And it's an incredible first seven minutes. The first seven minutes of Saving Private Ryan, Ryan is a reenactment of the Battle of D-Day when in 1944, Allied forces came together, right? The Canadians and the Spanish and the British and the Americans and, we, and the French. This is back when the French actually fought, all right? You know, they all came together, right? And we all joined forces to rise up against Hitler and his Nazis. So Hitler and his Nazis were, were killing innocent Jewish people. By the time it was all said and done, six million Jewish people had been killed in the Holocaust. And on that moment, on our watch, we rose up and said, we will fight for little boys and little girls in Holland who can't defend themselves. And so we joined forces together. And the Battle of D-Day in June 1944 was this moment when the war had bottlenecked. We knew we had to get into Europe and get high ground. And the Germans had high ground. And they owned this one particular region of, of France. But we knew we had to take it so that we could bring artillery and forces through it to go and fight and to be able to get the upper hand. The reality of that moment was that 153,000 forces came together. 37,000, 37,000 Americans lost their lives on the ground alone that day. 200,000 Germans lost their life on that battle. Very bloody battle. And the very first scene of this movie is a reenactment of that moment. I mean, it's just incredible. Like you, you see this flyby of a beach in France, Omaha Beach, right? And as you see the flyby, the camera immediately brings you into this water vessel. You got these soldiers sitting there. I say soldiers loosely because they look like little boys dressed in soldier outfits. And one of them can't stop his foot from shaking because he's just so full of fear. He's sitting in this water vessel and they're headed towards this beach. They know the Germans have the high ground. They've got the machine guns and they're ready just to pepper anything that opens up and dares try to hit the beach that they already own. And these soldiers are sitting there and one of them's just shaking. Another one takes a picture out of his jacket, kisses the picture of his wife and his child as if to say, this might be the last time I get to set eyes on my little boy, puts it back in. Uh, Tom Hanks's character, who's a bit of a, a leader, is giving some final instructions to them. And then you know in that moment that it's about to go down, that they're going to open up this latch and these men are going to have to jump out and they're going to have to start going forward because the only thing that costs more than not hitting the beach is doing nothing. And I remember I'm sitting there and I'm watching this. You're putting your popcorn down because you know, right, as you're putting your popcorn down, that this is about to go down. This is about to be bloody. This is about to be just a mess. And then it starts. They open up the latch, and, and these men start jumping down. And in THX, D, you know, Dolby sound, there is just body parts flying everywhere and people screaming. 
And I'm watching this war scene. And as I'm watching it, I'm trying to just take it all in. It's one of those things where it's hard to watch, but you can't stop watching. All of a sudden, one of these elderly gentlemen sitting in front of me yells really, really loud in the middle of, of the war scene in the movie theater. He just yells. He goes, this is just like when we were there. And at that moment, I stopped watching the screen and I looked down at the gentleman that had been just sitting there in front of me who had just screamed out. And I noticed from behind that his shoulder was just kind of shaking like this. As his shoulder was just shaking like this, I noticed he was crying. And I looked down at the other gentleman. I noticed that he was crying. And honestly, the first time I ever watched that movie, I, I didn't ever watch the movie. I watched the first four minutes and then I watched two men from behind watch that movie. And it was exhausting. For two and a half hours, these men just didn't stop crying. When the movie was over, I walk out of the theater and I'm just standing in the hallway and I felt like I needed to wait. And I just waited for these two elderly gentlemen and it took forever for them to get out. I think they were just collecting themselves. And they come out after a few minutes and I should have thought not to startle them, but I, I was just waiting. And so I walked up and I said, excuse me. And they looked up and you could see their eyes were bloodshot. And I said, I'm sorry to startle you. I said, I, I was the one person in the theater with you. We just all walked out of that movie, Saving Private Ryan. And I, and I said, sir, um, I noticed in the opening scene, the Battle of D-Day, that, sir, you yelled. I heard you yell to your friend. This is just like when we were there. And I just wanted to wait on you, sir. And I just wanted to ask you, sir, were you there? Were you physically at that battle? Did you fight that day? And he never said, the gentleman never said the word yes. He just shook his head and just starts weeping again. And the gentleman beside him puts his arm around him and he says, I'm sorry. He says, we weren't just there. He said, he lost his brother on that beach that day. And all of a sudden, three of us, we just stood there. We weren't strangers anymore. We were just Americans in this hallway. And I'm crying and these two men are crying. And for about 15 seconds, it's just awkwardly weird. And I took my hand out of my pocket and I put it towards that gentleman. And I said, sir, that was my hunch. I, when I heard that, I thought that's what had happened. And I just wanted to wait on you, sir, because I wanted to say to you personally, thank you. I wanted to say thank you, sir. I know that freedom isn't free. It's bloody and it's messy. But I know men like you gave a lot for it. I know that I'm afforded what I'm afforded because of people like you, sir. And thank you for giving up your brother. I know that's not what you wanted, but that's what it took. And I have what I have. And, and we get what we get. And I get afforded to me all those things because because of, thank you, sir. I wanted to shake your hand, sir. And he shook my hand and the other guy came in for a handshake and he pulled me in for a side hug and we hugged. And I'm telling you, I walked out of there more patriotic than a Lee Greenwood CD, all right? I mean, I walked out of there and I was like, and I'm proud to be a half American. I'm just telling you. And I am, I'm a, I'm a bit of a half American. Because I was born in Iran, all right, of all places. And when I was nine years old, we escaped from Iran and came here as refugees. And when I was 18 years old, I became an American citizen by paperwork. When I was 18 years old, my Iranian family went to the back of the Civic Center in Birmingham, Alabama, and it was the five Iranians. We walked in a room with, I'm not kidding you, like 70 Koreans, all right? And there was a judge with a robe on, and there was a table with copies of the Declaration of Independence, and then there was a, uh, there was a, a American flag, and the judge said this. He said, welcome. He said, you've walked in here today as people from different parts of the world, but you're walking out of here in just a little while as an American citizen, something that is a 
export it to very few people and you're going to be blessed. And he talked to us a little bit about America and how awesome America was. And then when he got done, this Korean family of like 70 people and our little Iranian family of five people, we each got a copy of the Declaration of Independence. And then he, the judge, with, with judge authority and power given to him, put our arms up like this. And then he said, repeat after me. And we pledged allegiance. I remember he, he goes, I pledge allegiance. And the whole room went, I pledge allegiance. It was awesome. And I was 18, all right, when I became a American citizen, all right, that day. And I'm just telling you, that didn't come at nothing. That was a gift that cost a lot. And I was an American citizen. And I walked out of there after seeing that movie and meeting those two men. And as an American citizen, I walked out of there, I'm telling you, so full of gratitude, so full of, of just thanksgiving in my heart. And if there had been some skinhead outside protesting the movie, exercising his rights, I would have exercised my rights. You know what I'm saying? Don't laugh at that. That's not shepherding. But you know what I'm saying? All right? Now, why was I moved? Why was I moved? Because for two hours, it went from information to personal, right? I think when I was a junior in high school, somebody gave me a, a number two pencil and a Scantron. And I'm pretty sure I took a test about the Battle of D-Day. I'm pretty sure that I had to answer something about it being in June. I'm pretty sure I had to know which were the allied, you know, the people who can't join forces with us. But I'm just telling you, it's one thing to know the information. It's a whole other thing to have it put in front of you. And then all of a sudden you meet two people who had a lot of skin in the game and it becomes real. Now, look at me. That's why we come to the table today, beloved. Because I know many of you know the gospel. Many of you maybe even today for the first time heard the gospel. But the truth of the matter is not do you know the gospel, not do you know the information of the gospel, the mechanics of the gospel, but have you ever been transformed by the gospel? And not only have you ever been transformed by the gospel, but are you grateful for the gospel? Are you thankful for the gospel? Every song we sing, the bucket that goes by in a little while and we give, every act of our life is not us in a transaction paying back. It's just us saying, I can never pay back, but I can surely show a life of gratitude, a life of thanksgiving. And you and I come to the table and we say, Jesus, you shed your blood for me. Jesus, your body was pierced for me, wounded crushed so that by your wounds, I can find healing. Jesus Christ, 2000 years ago, after having lived a perfect, sinless life, goes to the courtroom that we deserve. And in that courtroom, he is wrongly, wrongly trialed. He is. It's, it's just a, 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 just a joke, the trial that they put him through and they accuse him. After they accuse him, they, they bring him out. And after that moment of, of wrong judgment, then Jesus Christ in that very moment, right, begins to be beaten. The Bible clearly tells us that with a cat of nine tails to, to, to bring about, to maximize the pain that they could inflict upon him, Jesus is beaten almost to death. One more lash would have killed, but they give just to the point of torture. Enough lashes to make sure that they don't kill him too quickly. 
After he's completely whooped to a place where his back is basically turned into hamburger meat, then Jesus Christ is forced to carry his own weapon of mass destruction. They put a cross, a body of wood on top of him. By the way, that piece of wood was probably used over and over and over again on different people. They didn't give you clean pieces. It was covered with other people's just body. And Jesus Christ then begins to carry his own cross, his own cross down the road. And as he's walking, people are laughing and people are tripping him and people are pointing at him and people are spitting upon him and they're calling him names. They put a crown of thorns on him, not because they believe he was a king, but they put that crown of thorn to say, you say that you're the king we've been waiting for. You say that you have this kingdom. Where's your kingdom to come deliver you from this moment now? They're mocking him. After they take him there, they lay him down on that piece of wood. They put it across another another piece and they take nine inch nails and they begin to pierce his side. They begin to pierce his arms, pierce his feet. The Bible says that when Jesus was hanging on the cross, wounded, pierced, beaten, and every bit of that, that literally, literally when they pierced his side, both water and blood come out. People that have studied the, the account of the doctor from the medical field say they believe the reason both water and blood came out when they pierced the side is his heart must have been in so much physical pain, beating so fast that it literally must have burst the water cavity that, per that protects the human heart. And that's why when they pierced the side, blood and water came out. And Jesus Christ endured every single bit of that. Greater than any battle that was ever fought. Greater than any beach that was marched for the freedom of people. Jesus Christ endured that. I know when we think of Easter cantatas, we think of crosses that are put up high and Jesus's cross is usually the middle one, high, high, high. And then right below that are, are the two right beside of the three wooden crosses. But the reality of it was that Jesus Christ was put on a cross that was at ground level so people could walk by and they could mock and they could slap and they could spit and they could laugh and take the crown of thorns and push it down on his face even harder. Nothing was spared him. We don't know how to, how to deal with it. I think we try to bring dignity to the cross by putting a cloth loin over our Lord. But the reality was that more than likely he was completely naked because no humiliation was spared him. And by those wounds... We are healed. By those stripes, we find hope. And today when we come to the table, that's what the body and the blood represent. It's his table, but it has every bit of significance for us. Because look at me. It's not that Jesus did that for us. It's that Jesus did that because of us. When I share the story of Saving Private Ryan in parallel to this, the reality is that if we were going to put ourselves into that, and if Jesus is the soldier marching the beach, the reality of that is that we are not the innocent who are needing a deliverer. We're literally the Nazis in the story. But that's the power of the gospel. That's where every living illustration breaks apart in comparison to the gospel. Because in the gospel the enemies of the gospel literally become the prize of the king. That he who knew no sin became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. You know, I can't ever pay that back. We can bring our lives before him and we can say thank you. 
when I survey it, I'm awakened to the reality of what it means for me. And I want my life to be a life of gratitude. Just like I would put my arm out to that man and say, sir, I don't want to just walk away and say, big deal. I want to say it was a big deal. Thank you. Our lives become a life on display. Decorating. Showing gratitude to the one who did for us what we could never do on our own. Amen. And it's not just the songs we sing. It's not just the table that we come to. It is the marriage that we live out. Let your marriage be in remembrance of him. It's the parenting that you do. Let your parenting be in remembrance of him. It's the money that you spend this summer. Let it be in remembrance of him. We're just so prone to forget. On days like this, we stop. We put our eyes on the cross and we say, it's the only hope we have. Jesus, thank you. Thank you. Can we just bow our heads just for a second? In all of our different campuses, just with your heads bowed, can I just ask you a question? We shared today with you the good news that yes, sin is strong. Yes, sin separates us. Yes, we are dead in our trespasses and in our sins. But that in Christ, we can be made new. In Christ, that sin barrier can be removed. It has been paid for by Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. If you've never truly given your life over to Christ, if you've never come and said, Jesus, what you did on the cross is my only hope. You have that opportunity right now in all of our different campuses to bring your life before him and say, I've been turning my nose up against the very freedom that's been afforded to me, the very salvation that's been afforded to me. But today, no more. I don't want to take one more breath in my lungs without saying thank you, Jesus, for dying for me. I want to live for you. I want to receive what you did. As my only hope, if that's you right now, just pray this prayer of dependence. I, I like to call it a declaration of dependence. Just say these words in your own heart. Jesus, I know that you're real. I know that you're the son of God. I know that 2000 years ago, you came down and died a sinner's death on my behalf. You were pierced for my transgressions. You weren't pierced for your transgressions. You were wounded for my sins, not for your sins. There were no sins that you accounted, that you did. So all of that was on my account. And you satisfied God's holy standard by paying the penalty for my sin. Thank you that you died on the cross for me. I received that gift of salvation. Thank you that you fought the greatest battle ever fought for me. Come into my life. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. I know after you died on the cross, they put your body in a tomb. Three days later, they went to check on it and you were not in that tomb because you rose from the grave. Death could not hold you. And just as the old you died, a whole new me, I mean, the old me dies. And just as the, the, you rose, a whole new me rises up now. So I don't just die to my old self. I'm made new. Resurrection power. I receive that. Amen. Amen.